why you're here joining us this evening. Uh, I actually first met Helen Pites quite it's a few years ago now, and um, she came in a mountain leader training course uh, when I was working at Plaster Brennan, and, and she did stand out then. You know, it's just not very often you get national park wardens coming on mountain leader training courses, so it was lovely to have one, a real one, from Recon Beacons. And uh, her knowledge and ability really did make a big impression on the whole team that week. She, she shone quite brightly. So it's fantastic to see Helen make her way back to Snowdonia and progress through to the position that she holds today. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Helen Pye, who is Snowdonia National Park's Head of Engagement. Good evening, Helen. How are you today? Good evening. I'm good. Thank you, Mike. What a lovely introduction. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I have been eating soft meat, so uh, maybe a bit more of that later. Um, I, I've got to ask you, first of all, did you complete your mountain leader qualification? Yeah, I did. Um, so oh, that that um, week in Sodonia was amazing when we did uh, the training. Um, and I think it was a little bit of kind of coming back up to North Wales and you know that feeling that Snowdonia gives you, it kind of like gets to your bones, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, and and uh, so I think that was the kind of beginning of me kind of being drawn back back to the north. Um, right. So yeah, I did, I did my um, mountain leader assessment in Plaza Brennan as well. Uh, that was, I, I think I took about two years between the training and the assessment because um, I had Jack, my son, in between. Uh, good tip, great way to get rid of the baby weight, <laughs> training for <laughs> mountain leader assessment. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, it was, um, I did the assessment in Plaza Brennan with them. Um, uh, the, I don't, I think she's a chief instructor now. Um, oh Helen, yeah, yeah, yeah. Helen she, Barnard, Helen yeah. Barnard, it would be, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. She was brilliant. Um, Ian's just said we went a little bit late there, but I think we're okay now. If you have just joined us, this is Helen Pye, the National Park's Head of Engagement. So the next question is obviously, what on earth is a Head of Engagement, Helen? Oh, yeah, you could um, make a few jokes about that, couldn't you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I've got quite a broad team. Um, so part of my, I've got one team who does communications. So all of the kind of stuff that comes out in terms of communications with the National Park is, is um, my team. Um, and they're, they're amazing. Um, so they do, you know, our social media website um, and, you know, any kind of press releases and responses to um, press issues. So understandably, we're quite busy uh, through the summer season with all the kind of um, attention that Snowdonia was getting. Um, and then uh, we've all, uh, also as part of that team is kind of graphic design um, and Robin as well, who uh, runs our workshop and he like builds all of the kind of signs and interpretation boards and, and everything that we have in the National Park. Um, he's a like really talented guy. Um, so that's one team. And then there's also the partnerships team. So the partnerships team does everything um, to do with kind of uh, policy and engaging with partners in the National Park. So, um, for example, the Snowden partnership is in, is that team and the National Park plan is part of that team. So that's Angela and Catherine and they're heading up. Um, all of the work to do with um, parking and transport review on Snowden as well. Uh, so some pretty exciting stuff going on there. 
Um, then we've also got access policy and volunteering uh, and well-being. So again, anything to do with sort of um, policies to do with access to the outdoors in Snowdonia. So, um, for example, that would be in the summer when um, the areas were closed because of COVID. That was my, my team working on that. Um, so that was quite intense. Um, and also part of that team is volunteers. Um, so again, they did an amazing job in the summer working to recruit hundreds of volunteers to help us with looking after the National Park. Um, and then we've also got a new sustainable tourism team as well. So that includes looking after the information centres, uh, but also some new and exciting work on kind of developing how we can make tourism more sustainable in the National Park. Um, so yeah, it's quite, quite big, <laughs> but really exciting. I love it. I love the fact that, you know, um, you know, from one hour to the next, you can be doing something to do with volunteering to sustainable tourism to kind of proofing a press release or whatever definitely keeps me on my toes <laughs> anybody who knows me knows I like to be busy <laughs> I'm a little bit overwhelmed by that lot Helen to be honest <laughs> sorry um, <laughs> when you come home you also run a farm and you're a parent yeah yeah so um me and my partner Ben um run the farm in our spare time because Ben also runs a business called Paper Trail um, so he's like an entrepreneur tech guy um, but he's also like way into kind of conservation and farming and beef um, so so we do we do that and it's quite a good distraction from all the work we've got going on with kind of our sort of full-time jobs so it's quite nice to have that kind of switch off and go and do something completely different, you know, in the outdoors instead of in front of a screen or whatever. And then, yeah, we've got a son, Jack, he's 11 years old. Um, he keeps me young. <laughs> uh, for the last two days, our stairs have had a mattress on, which I'm not allowed to take off. And, and I have to slide down the stairs and climb back <laughs> up the mattress. <laughs> so, quite inconvenient because my office is upstairs, but I keep I keep moving it, and then somebody keeps putting it back on again. So is that Ben or Jack, the eleven-year-old? <laughs> Debatable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's come back to um, to the job. I, I'm not that interested in the communication side of things, um, but if there are things that you think um, an audience of mountain leaders need to know, then then please come back in on that. But you, you start off with the Snowden Partnership, and I know we've talked about this quite a bit over the years. Can you just give us in a nutshell what the Snowden Partnership is, what it's trying to do, you know, where it came from and where is it going? Um, yeah, okay. So, um, so six years ago now, I moved back up to North Wales and started as the warden on Snowden. Um, and when I did my interview um, with for this job, um, Emir said, like we, who's now the chief exec of the National Park, he said, um, you know, we've got some real challenges on, on Snowdon um, and we need somebody to help develop a management plan for the area. Um, so, you know, what would you say if we said, can you do this work? And I was like, bring it on. Um, and I'd done quite a bit of work down in Brecon Beacons with kind of developing uh, the gorge walking code of conduct in the waterfalls area and that sort of thing. Um, so it was something that I'd had experience with. Um, 
so that's where the kind of story began and you know over the kind of first year sort of started to get to know some of the challenges and I think really what it came down to it was there was a lot of great work going on from all sorts of different organizations that were involved in looking after the mountain um, however we were kind of all sort of doing different things and, and heading in different directions so so really the Snowden partnership was just about bringing everybody together and trying to find a kind of shared direction and a shared goal which um sort of sounds easy but I was, was I made quite a few mistakes like in the early days for sure and I learned so much um but in the end what it came down to in simple terms you know from conservationists to farmers was we all wanted to look after the mountain um you know that that was what was at the heart of it and when we kind of came to that quite simple conclusion then everything started to flow from there really um, and I think that's that's the thing I've learned about, you know, working with people, bringing people together. It, it's it's not about differences; it's about finding what you have in common. And I'm sure you've you've seen that a lot with the work that you do, Mike, and the you know in, engaging with landowners and that sort of thing. You know, sometimes it really tries to help to find out where people are coming from and what their motivations are for doing what they do, because. On the surface of it you might think that they're wrong or they're you know what they're doing is you know against your beliefs or whatever but when you have an understanding of, of where that comes from usually it's it's coming from a good place um so yeah that's that's yeah. kind of the basis of where the Snowden partnership sort of came from and started really yeah definitely when we talk to farmers if we're not getting on very well we just bring up disposable barbecues because we all hate disposable barbecues and we find some common ground and we, we rebuild our understanding from there and um, on Snowden I know you've got the National Park which is a government funded organization you own part of the mountain as well as managing the area and the interrelationships between the two groups you've got the National Trust to own some of the mountain presumably nrw have a role as well then you've got large and small landowners and a railway have i missed anybody out you know it's a big disparate group of people isn't it who actually own the mountain never mind all the ones that use it well yeah that's it you've got the people who use the mountain as well right um so i think there's a total of 25 landowners um from from small to large um over the whole of snowden um, like you say, the National Trust own land, um, even the Welsh government um, own land. So the, the sum, this is a sort of little known fact, but the summit of Snowdon is actually owned by the Welsh government. Um, and we have it, we look after it on behalf of the Welsh government on a kind of very, you know, historic lease. Um, but then the summit building itself um, is managed um, and tented to the Snowdon Mountain Railway Company. Um, so yeah, it's quite quite a lot of people um, involved in managing quite a lot of visitors. Um, so you know, over half a million visitors a year. Definitely the busiest mountain in the UK, um, if not wider. I'm not going to say the world because there are busier mountains in the world. I've I've done some research on this, um, but yeah, it's it's quite challenging to kind of you know. With everybody having their sort of different motivations and and priorities you know it is quite a lot of work to, to bring that together but 
but it does it does work and the core partnership that we've got is basically all the people that are involved in in managing so we did we did loads of kind of early um, consultations around all the communities and and with different stakeholders that all kind of influenced what went and it's into the Snowden plan um, and then now this Snowden partnership is basically all the people that are involved in the delivery uh, and what that means is instead of kind of um, continually debating what to do um, you're continually focusing on how to do it and delivery um, and, and there is a balance there you know people need to feel like they're kind of having input um, and they, they can have a say and they can influence what happens but equally you know I, I'm very much for the people who know me I'm very much about kind of making things happen and having a partnership that is all about delivery is is how we have started to make big changes in the area don't get me wrong there's a there's a lot to go but we yeah, so slowly slowly get in there so i guess the question is where are you up to now you, you have you got a plan have you got a vision are you on the journey towards that vision what how far down the pathway are you yeah so the snowden plan was launched um a year and a half ago um and there are kind of some sort of early projects that have already kind of been developed and, and implemented. And then the big stuff is the stuff that's currently happening in the minute that takes time to kind of develop and consult on and make sure that you've got the kind of detailed plan together. So one of the massive ones that we're working on at the minute um, is the parking and transport review. Um, so in February time, um, we had some consultants who were really experienced actually, and, and we chose them because they were really focused on how they can make the area much more sustainable. And that really came out in their bid. Um, so, and they had kind of a team who'd also worked in Austria on the Alpine Pearls um, scheme over there, if, if people have ever um, been to Austria. Um, anyway, so so they started their work in February time, um, ironically, and there was some loads of early engagement work with some of the key partners. And then they did a load of kind of gathering data and research. Um, and then in March time, when we were about to kind of start the public consultations, um, COVID hit. And, and I remember kind of having the discussions with a team of, we're supposed to have like village hall meetings next week what do we do and it was at this point where kind of it was the sort of early stages of realizing that covid was happening so we hadn't had the kind of lockdown yet but you know it was sort of a very much an emerging issue um so we had to kind of take a lot of stuff online um and in some ways actually we've learned a lot from that in some ways it kind of made it more accessible to to people and you got kind of different audiences um getting involved so the report from that, uh, with all the kind of, there's so much data that they've kind of pulled together from like, you know, how our car parking tickets. So you can see like when people are parking and what time of day are people counters, you know, what could work in the area, what wouldn't. Um, so they pulled all, all that together into a report and that was published in, um, August time, the kind of first draft that we started discussing with partners to kind of see whether it kind of fitted with how they worked and, and how they might help implement it. So we're kind of in the, the next stages of that at the minute where in January time we're going to be going out to 
the local communities to kind of do this master planning, which is basically saying, okay, here's a, here's a draft idea of potentially how we could tra transform parking and transport in the area, which is, you know, over the summer period has become even more of an issue for people. So here's our draft plan. What do you think? How can we adapt it to kind of more fit the needs of, of you know, your community? So those main sort of hubs around Snowdon, really. Um, it's pretty like, it's pretty exciting stuff. I think if we can make this happen, it's going to transform not just the area and, and what the experience of kind of visiting to something like super alpine sustainable, um, but I think it's also going to transform the way people think about and look at Snowdonia as an, as an area and a region um, by kind of being at the forefront of let's let's be a lot greener and a lot more sustainable about the way we do things in terms of tourism. So I'm pretty excited about it. It's like really challenging work to kind of shift like big changes in, in the way things are done. Um, but, and it'll take time, but we're getting there. <laughs> Is it possible to exemplify that, to share some of that excitement with us? Maybe give us two or three things that uh, potentially could happen? Yeah, we, so this is interesting, right? So um, in the summer, I'm sure you remember, we had like lots of dramas um, in the National Park. So um, from the kind of first national lockdown where we had that weekend in March where everybody came to Snowdonia and there was cars, you know, parked all of, along the clearway um, to when it reopened. And then we had sort of a week and a half of weirdly quietness and then it just went bonkers again. Um, and that really brought the kind of parking issues before, didn't it? Um, and so there was, at that point, we had a draft recommendations within the report. So we said, well, let's, let's just kind of try some of these um, ideas out and see and pilot them and see if they kind of have an effect. Um, and, you know, that's kind of down to as well, like the leadership of, of Emir, our chief exec, he gave us the ability to go, okay, let's just try things, you know, We've got to make really quick decisions here. Let's give it a go and see what happens. And I think that's really important kind of way to um, sort of change of way to operate in the public sector. Um, anyway, so one of the things that we did was we tried, um, we trialed pre-booking at Penna Pass, um, which is really interesting in terms of communication because uh, when we kind of announced first that we were going to close Penna Pass and then the next weekend we started pre-booking, um, kind of went bonkers online with night sort of 80% of people like brilliant it's the right thing to do and 20% of people saying you're insane like you have no idea what you're doing um, what became eminently clear was that most people think that Penna Pass is the only place to go up Snowdon um, they and they have they don't realize that there's there's other places to go up Snowdon anyway so we kind of we did a very kind of on the surface of it it looked fairly slick it behind the scenes it was lots of my team kind of doing a lot of manual work the wardens kind of feeding in information to this kind of machine of giving live updates and pre-booking and that sort of thing um, and it worked it worked really well um, and actually some of the feedback we had of people actually using that system was brilliant like I can I know that I can turn up and I've got a space and I know if I haven't booked a ticket I don't have to drive I'm not going to bother driving around 
yeah. I'm just going to go straight to the park and ride and in Chamberis on Ant Paris. And Gwynedd Council put on loads more um, buses. So that really helped with kind of people being able to kind of just jump on the next bus. Um, and, that, and that's another element of kind of um, improvements that, that, that we saw and that the kind of changes that we made. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really interesting. Would you say that the pre-booking was far more successful than, than we imagined? Because one of our problems with Penna Pass is people go in there to see if there is a space. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of our way of thinking, isn't it? It might say full at Penagurid or in Clamberis, but because of the way we think, we think, well, we'll just go and have a look and just check. And uh, that tends to actually increase the traffic movement because people are driving up to have a look. So the pre-booking looked like a, a real, real good success story there. But you talk about the extra buses, Helen. Did that pay for itself? Did the bus fares cover that? Or are you eventually going to get to a point where you, you know, where's the money going to come from? Yeah, no, it's definitely extra. <laughs> um, it, of course, it brought so, some extra income in, but not necessarily that would cover the cost of running that service. Um, so part of the, um, the work that's been done on this uh, review, they've kind of worked up a model of funding of how we can slowly come to a point where it's sustainable as well. Um, so that partly involves kind of, um, so that the main car parks within the kind of core area like Penna Pass, you basically up the price on those, make and, and but then also make sure that there's plenty of buses so that people can get to that, those sites if they want to. Um, that brings in a little bit extra, not as much as you would think. Um, and then there's various other elements then. So we're looking at a kind of um, sort of a, a pass basically that would allow you to do all sorts of different things in the area in terms of kind of getting around and discounts and that sort of thing. So people will buy the pass and that then also goes into kind of contributing towards the kind of upkeep and running. But really long term, um, in order to make this sustainable, it needs some form of kind of levy or, or kind of visitor tax or, or something like that, um, where the more visitors there are, the more income comes in, in order to kind of fund that type of model. Um, you know, and I think in the UK, we kind of balk at that idea, uh, but it's pretty mainstreamed in Europe. And I think that's why they're pretty good. When you go to Europe, the services are really good. And that's because the more visitors that go, the more funding goes into, you know, financing the infrastructure that you need for visitors. Uh, and I think that's where we've got the model slightly wrong in the UK is mm -hmm. the more visitors that come, the more impact there, there is, but there's no, you know, there's no extra funding for maintaining that infrastructure. Like as a national park, we've had kind of in real terms, 40% cut over the last 10 years. Um, and there's only so much kind of, you know, efficiency <laughs> that you can make before there's there's nothing else to cut really. Um, so yeah, I think I'm kind of quite a passionate believer in like, we really need to think about how we do tourism and, and sustainable tourism in Wales and, and potentially, because we're quite a small country, we can adapt quite quickly to trying different things. I think I think that's interesting. I think lots of people listening will will be interested in that as well. Um, but 
On the other hand, Snowdon is, you know, it could be considered a national monument. It's an environmentally sensitive area. Uh, there's only one Snowdon and it is incredibly popular. So if you think, you know, somewhere like Stonehenge is getting, you know, a billion pounds spent on the roads to protect Stonehenge, is there not some Welsh government or UK government money that, that somebody needs to be putting into Snowdon? Because you could make a massive difference with, a relatively few million quid, couldn't you, on Snowden? Is that avenue been tackled as well? Yeah, definitely. So when I was talking about the kind of sustainability of the model, um, that's in terms of um, the kind of revenue. So that's the annual running costs of, of that scheme. You also need capital investment up front, which is basically buying all the, you know, electric buses and, and uh, improving of the infrastructure. Uh, and setting up of these schemes and actually the Welsh government have been massively supportive on that you know again this is uh, what I see as the kind of benefit of, of being quite a small country um, is that that we have those kind of direct ties and conversations with Welsh government and um, so so the national parks are within um, the environment and rural um, section of the Welsh government so that's under Le Leslie Griffiths um, but uh, we've also got a number of civil servants that kind of work with us and they work really closely with us. And I won't, you know, I won't name names, but they they are absolutely fantastic and they really understand the issues um, that affect Snowden. You know, they before COVID, um, in fact, the, the, the kind of summer before, um, they were out with us looking at the area, looking at kind of the challenges and, and how they could help. So um, this this winter we're actually working with Transport for Wales um, which is part of Welsh Government and they're providing funding to start some of these um, early interventions with the parking and transport so they're helping us set up a kind of more permanent version of the kind of pre-booking and the live updates um, and they're helping with the community engagement and kind of uh, the master planning as well so yeah, they've, they've been brilliant, actually. And, you know, obviously the public purse is massively stretched at the minute, but they, they do see this as a priority and, and they're showing that by kind of helping us, not just in kind of bringing staff and, and stuff to help us, but also in terms of kind of capital yeah. funding as I, well. I can see this is um, one of the advantages that you've got of that direct line to the Welsh government. But but the big money's in Westminster, isn't it, Helen? And, and you know, what percentage of the visitors coming to Snowdon are from Wales and what percentage are from other parts of the UK? So, you know, are the UK government going to chip into this or is that just, just an impossible dream? <laughs> It's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Because, um, you know, tourism is is like one of the things that is devolved. Um, and, and there are kind of some schemes where um, Westminster can contribute as well. So I'm sure there are opportunities down the line there. But I think in terms of kind of the, the immediate response and the understanding of the issues, like the Welsh government are really showing that, that they understand that. Um, and we work really closely with um, national parks across the UK. This morning I was chatting to um, my colleagues who are heads of communications from the Peak District of Dartmoor. Um, and, you know, last week I was in with all of the heads of comms from the UK national parks. Uh, and they're a very different setup in, in the different regions. So Scotland sort of is a little bit similar to us, um, but, you know, different in other ways. And then, you know, in England, it's different again. And, and I certainly see the advantage that we have of, of that kind of 
closeness to our government and therefore yeah. the, the ability to kind of react when there's issues. Um, you know, in, when we were going through COVID, um, Emmy was having kind of weekly meetings with Welsh government to kind of talk about how we adapted to the challenges. Um, so, you know, I might be biased. I'm, I'm very kind of, yeah, go Wales. <laughs> but it's it's really helped us um, through this period, yeah. Do you, while you mentioned COVID, I, I want to come back to visitors, but while you mentioned COVID, it's come up a couple of times there, hasn't it? You got a lot of stick this summer for closing the national park and all this kind of stuff. Just just talk us through that, Helen, because that, that must have been a really difficult time for you. Oh, do you know what? It's been, it was one of the most difficult decisions um, that I've ever been involved in making. Um, and and also the period that we were closed was one of the most challenging times um, because of the frustrations of some of the local community at being able to access um, those areas that we closed. Um, and I, I kind of wish in a way that people had been a fly on the wall in the conversations that we we're having. And you know, it's hard to explain this sometimes when when people can just see you know what is there on the surface and the reality of it. Um, but at the point in time where we had to make uh, the decision, it was that, you know, it was straight after that weekend where, you know, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people yeah. had descended on Snowdonia. Um, the Brecon Beacons and, and Pembrokeshire had also had similar challenges, just not on the scale that we'd had. Mm -hmm. um, so the Welsh Government put into legislation that, that we could close access areas. Um, and the Brecon Beacons went for a kind of like blanket closure. So most of the access areas within Brecon Beacons are closed. Uh, Pembrokeshire has kind of less open access um, and they went for kind of pockets. And we kind of went with the same sort of approach of Pembrokeshire where we just closed what we saw as kind of the, the busiest sites. I think there was probably some areas that maybe weren't that busy really. Um, so on hindsight, we probably could have tightened down on, on those areas. Um, but it, was, it, Alan, it was to close the honey pots that were drawing people in, was that to reduce the attraction? Is that was that the idea to reduce the attraction? And, and I don't know if it's kind of weird looking back now, but at that point in time, nobody really knew how COVID spread, so there was very little understanding of whether it could spread in the outdoors or not. So, uh, and now we know so much more about it, but at that point in time, we were making a decision based on a kind of a kind of pandemic and a virus that was spreading that could potentially spread outdoors and people locally were so worried about the yeah. fact that hundreds of thousands of people were coming here and potentially spreading the virus in an area that's very normally there's only 25,000 people that live in the national park right so it's pretty sparsely populated so that feeling of you know the fear of kind of the virus coming in was was real you know yeah. um but what what that did do in terms of kind of um, closing down was it sent a very strong message to say that the mountains were closed, even though all the mountains weren't closed. Um, and it was very effective in, in that sense. And I think, you know, a lot of the work we do is it's not just what we do on the ground. It's how we communicate that out to people as well. You know, you, you've been part of this. You helped with the... Thank you very much. You helped with the kind of welcome back video and kind of trying yeah. to get that message out to people of when you come back, please tread lightly, you know, be respectful of the area and that sort of thing. And 
yeah, it's, it, it's, it was very important to get that message out at the time because there was such a kind of local tension and, and fear of, of what was going to happen. Um, um, that must help that you're the head of communications there as well. And I know you've got plans brewing through um, January and February on how to improve that message to people. So we, you know, we do perhaps need to change visitor behaviour. A lot of visitors haven't behaved respectfully to the environment, but we also need visitors to stay for more than a day to, to spend some money to, to put something into the area when they come. I often say to people, every pound spent here by a visitor is a pound that wouldn't have been spent here. So we need to encourage that as well. Is that on the radar? Is that the sort of thing you're thinking about too? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's, it's partly that and, um, you know, partly as well, trying to encourage people to not necessarily come in July and August when there is just no capacity left at all. Um, but being sensitive then about when they do therefore come. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a real kind of fine balance of messaging. And, and you've also got to think about, um, you know, where people go. So lots of people go up Snowdon or the majority of people go up Snowdon. Yeah. Um, you know, do you push people out to other areas? Personally, I feel that's quite a dangerous strategy to play. Um, and, and from what I've seen in my kind of career managing, uh, working in the national parks, is that you have to have the infrastructure there for visitors. So as soon as you send people to quieter areas, you have massive problems um, with infrastructure. And we saw that this summer, you know, people just mm -hmm. camping anywhere. You know, there's there's no bins in quieter areas. There's not enough car parking space, all that sort of stuff. So it all has to be a, a little bit more carefully thought out. Our, our real push for next season is about um, this idea of you're visiting a national park. It's a sensitive, special place. A lot of people are yes. really not aware of that. They're not aware that they're visiting a national park that's kind of protected and that's sensitive. So that's the kind of first big message to, to get to people really is, is that feeling of kind of, I'm, I'm going somewhere that, that I need to kind of look after and be a bit sensitive about. Um, and then really trying to start working on how do people think about Snowdonia, right? Um, because sort of for the last maybe five years, it's been quite a lot about adventure and adrenaline, but there's a risk to that. There's a risk that people, if you plant the seed of, of that in people's mind, then they're visiting a place thinking, um, I'm going to treat this as a place for adrenaline adventure. And it's like a, a theme park and, and all those things are going to be there for me and I'm going to behave in that way. It's, it's quite, you'd think it would be quite a nuanced thing, but the way that you talk about a place has quite a big impact on the way people behave when they arrive. Um, so we're really starting to work on, um, you know, what we, how we talk about Snowdonia and really pulling back to the things that make Snowdonia really special. Um, and that's, technically comes under the special qualities which there's nine of you'll you'll know these off by heart um but you know it's not just the kind of mountains and landscape but it's the people the connection of people to the land it's about artists and poetry the language the culture of the area so it's, you know Snowdonia is incredibly rich this is one of the things like when I came up to do 
uh, my mountain leader training, um, this was a thing that kind of got me was that there's something really special about Snowdonia in it's like got quite a depth to it. You know, it's not, it's not just like mountains. It's like the ruggedness and the kind of reality of it. And that the people are part of that as well. I think, you know, the people make a place. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what we're kind of going to be working yeah. on, along with the usual, you know, fly camping issues. Literally all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, the people watching this are going to be as angry about fly camping and fly campfires and disposable barbecues as, as you are. Um, and, and I also think the people watching this are probably more interested in the environment and the culture than just walking a long way or climbing hard routes um, because they've taken the time to invest in this, this listening to, to this conversation. How can they learn more? You talk about the nine special qualities. Are there any avenues from the National Park that they can develop their skill set to know more about Snowdonia? Uh, yeah, actually, yes. Yeah. So um, as part of, I, I didn't mention this earlier, so the Snowdon plan that we developed within that, um, there was a plan to develop an ambassador scheme. So a lot of areas in the UK have ambassador schemes. We, we haven't historically had one. But it's it's really about um, those people are really passionate about the area area. Um, but then and then people who own kind of B&Bs and hotels, you know, mountain guides, all of those people who are kind of de delivering tourism in the area, kind of training them up in all of those kind of messages and, and information. Um, so we launched an ambassador scheme a couple of weeks ago now and Catherine and, and Angela from my team are leading on that. So you, so you can become part of that scheme. Um, you, there's a series of modules that you can run through and you be, can become, start with bronze, silver, and then the elusive gold. We've got, it, it's been massively uh, popular so far, which is really exciting. Um, we've got kind of 40 or 50 businesses um, who are already ambassadors. Uh, we've only got three golds um so they're like the you know creme de la creme <laughs> i'm not gonna name them and embarrass them but um yeah it's a really great scheme and the team put so much work um into developing the modules but we've also had input from you know you know people like you to develop um the modules so it's not just the national park kind of you know wagging our finger at people and telling people how things should be done you know the national park isn't about us it's about everybody who who works here and, and everybody who lives here just remind how we access that helen um so you can either just go on um any search engine and type in uh, ambassadors already um or you can also go to uh ambassador.cymru and that takes you onto the website that's the ambassador schemes website for wales and uh, Snowdonia's got a, a special page on there where you can register and, and sign up. We um, we could carry on, <laughs> carry on talking about Snowden, I'm quite sure. It's, it's a real imbalance in Snowdonia, isn't it? You know, Snowden does draw a, a massive number of visitors and, and they're not all traditional hill walkers or climbers, are they? They are tourists who have been to Zip World, they've been on the steam railway, They've been to the beach, they've been to Carnarvon Castle, and then they go up Snowdon. So it's a quite a different group of people. To what degree does the National Park recognise that? Does it recognise there are 
what I would call bona fide hill walkers, you know, hill walkers who want to go to uh, other parts of the national park and um, what we would call tourists. I mean, are they all just tourists to the national park or do you recognize different groups of people who have different things to bring? Yeah, definitely. Um, because I, I sort of worked there for a couple of years on the ground as a warden and my perspective was definitely changed after a couple of years, you know, and, you know, hundreds of times walking up and down the hill and speaking to people. Um, and the way I look at it is it's a kind of like a training ground for, for your kind of bona fide hill walkers of the future, because we all started somewhere. Right. Um, and I think it's really easy to forget that. I think if you're an instructor, you're, you're less likely to, to, forget that because you're always teaching newbies aren't you so you remember what it's like to not not know anything but it can be quite easy to do that and to look at people and going oh you know what are they wearing or why are they doing that but they don't know what they don't know um and so there is the kind of opportunity for those people who are kind of going hill walking for the first time to be inspired and to to kind of be hill walkers for life and they might not do it perfectly the first time. And sometimes they really don't do it perfectly. Um, but, but it is definitely an opportunity to engage with these, those people. And I think if you approach it like that, rather than a kind of, yeah. you know, telling people what to do and telling them what they're, they're doing wrong, I very quickly learned that people do not like to be told what to do. No. Yeah. <laughs> Especially guys <laughs> from a female warden, doesn't go down well. <laughs> They don't. Um, uh, Tony Ellis has put a link to the ambassador scheme on the chat below the video here. So that's quite helpful. Oh, thanks, Tony. Tony. Tony's um, one of our amazing Snowden volunteer wardens. Um, they basically saved the summer. So they're a, they're a group of like, I think there's about 30 now. Um, so when I was a warden, we set up this scheme of volunteer wardens. Um, and they, they're amazing. They basically come out every weekend, they speak to visitors, they collect litter, they help clear out drains, and they basically look after the mountain. Um, and they, they kept me going through the summer, actually, because I was sort of like, you know, with my screens in office, and we had WhatsApp groups going, and they were sharing what how things were going and where there, there were issues, you know, working with the wardens team to kind of on the ground. Yeah. And they're just so enthusiastic and, and so kind of passionate about looking after the National Park. They're amazing. Thanks, Tony. <laughs> did, um, did you have plans to extend the volunteer scheme beyond Snowden as well? Is that something that's in the pipeline? Yeah, that's uh, something that we're looking at for um, this coming year. So, um, so this last season that that's um, just been, we worked with the Snowdonia Society and the Now Outdoor Partnership on a massive recruitment drive um, to get a load of uh, volunteers to help with when the visitors came back because we were quite lucky, we're, really, England opened up before Wales did. And so we could kind of see what was gonna happen um, two weeks down the line they were already before we opened they were having massive challenges with fly camping with litter and all that sort of stuff so we had a bit of time bit of time to prepare um, so we kind of put put these messages out to um, get volunteers to try and help and and the response was just incredible I think we had like over a hundred volunteers 
you know, mainly like outdoor instructors who, if you think about it, a lot of people would have been a pretty dark place at that point in time with no work. And yet they were still prepared to kind of give their time to, to look after the areas. So inspiring. Um, so yeah, we had like hundreds of volunteers helping out again to, to look after the area and look after the mountain. Um, so we're looking at doing that next year. And uh, the wardens in the south of the National Park are really keen to be part of it as well, because, um, you know, they're, they're also having challenges down there. And they're really keen to work with volunteers, too. So more on that coming soon. <laughs> Excellent. That's, that's really good to hear. Um, I've got a specific question here. There's a, a plan for a long distance path from Bala to Trowsvinneth. Is that something you know about? Is it on the old railway line or is it a different path? Um, I think that's a bit of concern it goes through Hen Harrier country. Yeah, I think that's probably some of the early ideas within uh, the National Park plan. I might be I might be wrong about that. Yes, I think um, it is right. Yeah, yeah. So again, it's sort of in the ideas phase at the minute. I so see. certainly, as that idea develops, um, we'll be looking at all the kind of any potential challenges and stuff. Um, and I think that this is really important to say, right, because I think sometimes maybe people see the National Park as kind of this unapproachable kind of corporate organisation, but, but we're all people and, and you know, I think we're all pretty approachable. And, and I'd, so I'd always encourage people if they have like issues like that, you know, just get in touch on Facebook, Twitter, we're pretty responsive on there and let us know um, because we, you know, we won't always know um, everything about every area we might you know we might have missed something um, so yeah I'd, I'd always encourage people to get in touch they'll probably find out that we are real people um, <laughs> that are prepared to discuss and come up with solutions and, and ideas for sure that's great that railway line would make a good cycle track actually yeah it'd be be great to have more um, cycle routes in the national park wouldn't it They've got some amazing cycle, long distance cycle routes. Yeah. Um, crikey. The other one I wanted to ask you about, because um, time is running away and I've got loads of things to talk about, but you had the Snowden partnership. The National Park plan has just come out. Another thing floating around is the Carnethi project, isn't it? Is that the same as the Snowden partnership or is that something different? What's the gist of the Carnethi? So the Canedai project is project. A, a new big project. It's been funded by the Heritage Lottery Fund. Um, so there's a whole team um, of people that are working on that. Just so happens that the person heading up that team is my wonderful sister, Marianne. Um, Marianne Pai, same surname, surprisingly, so she's easy to find. Um, and they're, they're a fantastic team, actually. We've obviously kind of, um, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, how have we ended up, both of us kind of doing similar things, but um, our mum worked for Countryside Council for Wales years ago. Um, so we grew up on this uh, sort of self-sufficient small holding on Anglesey. Um, the, the, in the house, there was posters from CCW all over the walls. I can't, I don't know if you remember this one, Mike, but there was one with the Snowden lily, which was Gwynebid Ambahid, which is in English translates as, you know, our world is, is beautiful, but for how long? Um, so we kind of grew up with that sort of environmental, but on a farm type 
um, life. And so I think that's obviously stuck somehow when we've ended up doing these jobs of, of looking after areas. So the Canada project is really exciting. Um, it's, it's very much focused on the kind of the heritage, the incredible like world famous archaeology on the Carnedai. Um, there's some like really important stuff on there. Um, and it's about kind of bringing people into, into that in terms of the kind of understanding, engagement, and particularly kind of local communities um, and people who live and work locally. So I think it's a real opportunity for outdoor instructors to kind of become part of quite an exciting scheme. It, it's not about kind of getting a load of visitors to go to the Carnethai, you'll be <laughs> pleased to know. Um, it's, it's about kind of embracing like what makes the Carnethai special and, and kind of learning and protecting all of that as well. Ellen, we, we could talk about that sort of stuff again all night and I've got questions. I think you've answered actually about getting in touch with you, sharing views and ideas from local people. You've mentioned Facebook, Twitter. Um, we can certainly find email contacts on the National Park website, can't we? And you have attended local BMC meetings. So there are quite a few avenues there. But I, I just wanted to come back to you, actually. And you talked about your inspiration there being your mum and that set you and your sister off. There's a lot of young people in North Wales who are not that aware of the amazing special place they live in. And you're certainly not aware that there could be careers for them in conservation and environmental management, countryside management. How, where can they go? How can they find out more? Can the Snowdonia National Park do more to inspire the youth of North Wales to get more involved? Yeah, I, there's massive opportunities there, isn't there? Um, and, you know, I, I grew up in North Wales and you know, I got dragged to the mountains by my dad's like a massive hill walker as well. Um, so he's like regularly in the in the mountains of Snowdonia. Um, so I felt like we were getting dragged there when we were younger, but again, that's obviously stuck. Um, and, and I think it only took me to, to kind of leave and come back to really appreciate like how how amazing this area is and to kind of you know, so so sometimes you can't force it on people, it just kind of happens, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but I think there are definitely opportunities there, you know, and there's other organisations that are doing fantastic job on this, like the Outdoor Partnership. They're doing some amazing work at kind of connecting young people and, and training them up to kind of be the, the future outdoor instructors. Um, I think in terms of like advice and, and kind of careers in this area of work, I would always say volunteering is, is the way because, you know, it's, a little bit of it. it's about getting your foot in in the door in an organization and kind of getting to know the people kind of you know that they know your face they know who you are they they know kind of you know how good you are at kind of working and that sort of thing so and then it also gives you experience so volunteering is is a fantastic way of kind of um building a career and that's that's where i started uh, so i did a degree in aberystwyth university um in conservation and whilst I was doing that, I was I, I started up a wildlife watch club um, in the kind of local, it was like a council estate um, just outside Aberystwyth. So started kind of doing that with volunteering. Um, and then I volunteered kind of in nature reserves. And just that kind of background experience then got me my first job in the Brecon Beacons National Park as a warden. 
Um, so, you know, it, it really does make a difference to kind of put yourself out there and, and try different things and, and get to know people. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, Tim, Tim Jepson's just sent a question in and it's one that it's one that scuppered the old green key and it's one that keeps coming back and it's about local use of the hills. Sometimes people who live locally feel as though they're not recognised, they feel as though the people that use the hills are always lumped in as visitors. And he's talking about all the little secret laybys and free little car parks we have and how can you reassure enthusiastic local hill users that their future needs will be considered as well? Or do they just need to accept whatever comes in terms of the bigger picture and it's applied to everybody? Do you understand? Yeah. Um, I, th I think I can reassure him, I'll try. Um, so the next stage is really about kind of speaking to user groups and communities about these are the draft plans how is this going to work um so this will be the kind of you know testing field for going okay th this is what we've come up with how can we adjust it to make it work you know there is going to be a degree of kind of um you know trying things out and and i think that's why i just really encourage people to kind of think about is we're trying to do stuff because we want make things better for everybody and that's not just about uh, inverted commas visitors that's about everybody whether they live locally whether they they are local users of the mountains like that's what we're trying to do there's no hidden agenda um and so you know if you if you believe that that's where we're coming from um then the plans that we're trying to put in place uh, are trying to address that um and they might not work for everybody and you know the example of kind of Penna Pass um, and the pre-booking there was a lot of people that told us that is not going to work and it did so sometimes you've got to try stuff sometimes you've got to accept that you try stuff and it doesn't work um, but I think that's really where we maybe fell down with the green key in the past is that um, you know there was there was grand plans there might have been a kind of bit too you know early for their time yeah. um, and there was not enough kind of support in order to kind of take those forward. And so we have to work with people to kind of develop these plans, but people have to have faith that we're doing, doing things for the right reason. And, you know, if, if we can't make these changes, then nothing's going to change, is it? We're just going to go back to the challenges that we've had. So there is going to be a bit of pain, I think, a bit of kind of ripping off the plaster. Um, but we are trying to make sure that it's just about palatable for everybody and hopefully a load better, you know. I do think there's a lot of recognition of that locally and we living locally do need to examine what we do and where we go and how we do it and that will be part of it. Um, we, we're right out of time now, so we need one word answers if you can do it as near yeah. as possible. Um, ambassador. Well, before you ask me the next question, I've got something to show you. Hang on. You'll, I, I hope you remember this. <laughs> I think this could be embarrassing. Um, Don't worry, you're not in the picture. So oh, um, right, when we did uh, the mountain leader training, um, do you remember that there was a guy on the course? We went up into the Carnedai and we um, camped overnight, right? And in yep. the morning, there was this, the most incredible cloud inversion. Ah, yes, I think um, that did stand out. 
I mean, I, you've done hundreds of courses, so I'd yeah. be so amazed if you did remember, but um, there was a guy on the course who was a photographer and he took this picture of me sat um, on the top of the Cadnevo and it's on my wall. I don't know if you can wow. see that. Yes, I do, <laughs> do think I remember that. It was a particularly good, good expedition, wasn't it? With the inversions there. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I was just um, amazing. I, yeah. I came up from trying to put um, my contact lenses in, in a tent, <laughs> in the dark, when we went to do night nav. Now that was um, an experience for sure. That, that's what training's all about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Right, we've run out of time, so I'm not going to ask any more questions. Um, but there will be a chat below this on the uh, Facebook Live page. So if anybody wants to uh, comment there, that, they're welcome to do so. So I just want to say a massive thanks to you, Helen, for that. That hour has whizzed by in no time at all. Uh, maybe we'll have you on again in a year's time and see, see how things are going then. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks, Thank Mike. you very much. Thank you. And thank you to people for uh, for tuning in and listening, uh, whether it's on the podcast or on Facebook Live. I'm going to take a break now because it's Christmas and I'll be back sometime in January. There's a whole load of events popping up on Facebook with different people we're talking to in the new year. But listen, if there's people you want me to talk to, if people you want me to ask questions to, you just you just send the names in and I'll see what I can do. So uh, between us, me and Helen know everybody, so uh, we can get them all on board, okay? So the Achenbauer and Nostar. Um, we're going to hand over to Ian Cooper now, who's going to turn us off. So thank you very much, everybody. <laughs>